As we go into our Bible study, I'm going to ask that you turn to the book of Zephaniah, chapter 2, verse 4, and we're going to cover all the way to chapter 3, verse 8. The title for the message this morning is Judgment for All Nations. We're just going to ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word, may we understand and know that it is your word. Though spoken long ago, Lord, you're speaking today. It was true then, it remains true now because your word never passes away and you will accomplish all that you have set out to do and all that you have promised. Father, as we read these words, speak to us what you desire for us to hear, Father God. May we hear the warning from your judgment, Father God. May we hear what you are saying to us this morning through Jesus. Amen. Maybe you already are aware of this, but ignoring warnings brings on consequences. Warnings are meant to do that, right? Warnings are meant to warn of consequences coming, of things that will happen if you ignore it. When you ignore them, you're disregarding their entire purpose. Maybe you can think of times where maybe you've ignored a warning. You didn't think that it applied to you. You know, there's warnings like road closed up ahead and you ignored that sign and you get up there and you're like, why is the road closed? What are, what's going on here? Bridge is out. You know, you want to pay attention to warnings like that. You know, um, people get into a lot of trouble when they ignore a warning and they later will have regrets about it. We can all think of times we ignored a warning and we found ourselves in a big pile of trouble. And so maybe there's other times that you can think about where you received a warning, you took it to heart, you followed it. And then as you went path down the path of safety, you looked at the other path and you're like, man, I'm so glad I didn't go over there. You steered clear from a bad decision. You avoided trouble. Maybe you stayed out of perilous danger. Well, that's the whole purpose of God sending his prophets. They were to warn of his promised judgment. Zephaniah is one such prophet. And as we looked at last week, we saw that his warning message was for Judah. And the desire of the warning was that Judah would hear the warning and seek the Lord before it's too late. Because that's what warnings are for. Warnings are only warnings until it's too late. And so Zephaniah started with the people of the Lord because we know that judgment begins at the house of the Lord. Peter in his epistle tells us, for the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who disobey the gospel of God? You see, the gospel of God is a warning with a promise. If we avoid the, if if we follow the warning and we take hold of the promise, we avoid the calamity. But what happens to those who disobey the gospel of God and don't know God and, and, and disregard his word? You see, judgment begins at the house of the Lord, but it spreads, and it's promised to all nations. God is the God of all nations, and the nations who ignore God's warnings and ignore God's laws and act against God's people, they will not escape the wrath to come. On the day of the Lord, the Lord is warning us today and promising the nations of then that all the nations and all the people will taste the judgment of God. And this morning, may we hear, may we heed the warning. Judgment is for all nations. Starting in verse four of chapter two, it says, for Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon will become a ruin. Ashdod will be driven out at noon and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites, The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you until there is no one left. The seacoast will become pasture lands with caves for shepherds and pens for sheep. The coastland will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah, and they will find pasture there. They will lie down in the evening among the houses of Ashkelon, for the Lord their God will return to them and restore their fortunes. I've heard the taunting of Moab and the insults of the Ammonites who've taunted my people and threatened their territory. 
Therefore, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, the God of Israel. Moab will be like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place overgrown with weeds, a salt pit, and a perpetual wasteland. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The remainder of my nation will dispossess them. This is what they get for their pride because they taunted and acted arrogantly against the people of the Lord of armies. The Lord will be terrifying to them when he starves all the gods of the earth. Then all the distant coasts and islands of the nations will bow and worship to him, each in its own place. You Cushites will also be slain by my sword. He will also stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolate ruin as dry, dry as the desert. Herds will lie down in the middle of it, every kind of wild animal. Both eagle and owls and herons will roost in the capitals of its pillars. Their calls will sound from the window, but devastation will be on the threshold, for he will expose the cedar work. This is the jubilant city that lives in security, that says to herself, I exist, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A place for wild animals to lie down. Everyone who passes by her scoffs and shakes his fist. Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. She has not obeyed. She's not accepted discipline. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. The princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves of the night, which leave nothing for the morning. Her Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to instruction. The righteous Lord is in her. He does no wrong. He applies his justice morning by morning. He does not fail at dawn. Yet the one who does wrong knows no shame. I've cut off nations. Their corner towers are destroyed. I've laid waste to their streets with no one to pass through. Their cities lie devastated without a person, without an inhabitant. I said, you will certainly fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling place would not be cut off based on all that I had allocated to her. However, they became more corrupt in all their actions. Therefore, wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration. Until the day I rise up for plunder, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms in order to pour out my indignation upon them. All my burning anger for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. And as we consider that judgment is for all nations, we need to remember the promise. God will act. A lot of times when judgment is promised and it doesn't happen, people begin to assume God's not going to do anything. Or worse yet, they say God can't do anything. But God will act And he'll act in several ways. And number one, he's going to act on behalf of his people. He says, For Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon will become a ruin. Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. He says, Woe, inhabitants of the seacoast, nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. He says, I will destroy you until no one is left. The seacoast will become pasture lands with caves for shepherds and pens for sheep. It says the coastland will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. They will find pasture there. They will lie down in the evening among the houses of Ashkelon. For the Lord their God will return to them and restore their fortunes. It says, I have heard the taunting of Moab and the insults of the Ammonites who taunted my people and threatened their territory. Therefore, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, the God of Israel. Moab will be like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place overgrown with weeds, a salt pit, a perpetual wasteland. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The remainder of my nation will dispossess them. So Zephaniah is pronouncing the judgment of the Lord. And as he begins to pronounce God's judgment against the nations, he names four cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. And if you're familiar with Old Testament, or if you're familiar with the wanderings of Israel or the history of Israel as they go into the land of Canaan, you know that these are Philistine cities. 
And as you think of the Philistines, you know that there's a city that's left off this list. That's the city of Gath. Goliath, the giant, was from Gath. Gath is missing from this list because Gath is lying in a heap of ruins. It's utterly destroyed from King Uzziah. He devastated it, and it's never been recovered. In fact, if you remember the other prophet that we studied, Amos had also listed these cities, and Gath was also left off of it. Then the judgment continues. It goes to the seacoast nation of the Cherethites. Now, the Cherethites are the modern-day land of Crete or the land of the Cretans, the people, not the insult. The judgment is that the word of the Lord is against Canaan. Canaan is known as the land of the Philistines. Complete destruction is described in this judgment pronounced by God. He says that you will be abandoned, you will be ruined, you will be driven out, you will be uprooted. Then in verse 8, God adds more nations to this list. He adds Moab and the Ammonites, two nations that are a sore spot in the history of Israel. They were born of Lot's daughter's incestual relationship with Lot, giving birth to both Moab and the Ammonites. And before you start to think, well, God just hates the Moab, Moabites and the Ammonites, understand this, Rahab was a Moabite. Rahab is in the direct lineage of Christ. It's not that God hates them as a people, but their actions, the way that they are, and the way that they treat Israel is different. And so he gives them the same judgment, and he gives them the same future as Sodom and Gomorrah. So the Moabites as a whole, as a nation against Israel, and the Ammonites as a whole, as a nation against Israel, God's people, God has given them a judgment likened to Sodom and Gomorrah, which have been utterly destroyed. It says that they'll be overcome with weeds, a salt pit, perpetual, meaning ongoing, never ceasing wasteland. And so I want us to pay close attention to the end of verse five, where he says, woe to the inhabitants. The word of the Lord is against you. And then he says, I will destroy you until there is none left. You see, their destruction is coming, it's promised, and it's coming from the Lord himself. Because our God is a God of action. And verses 6 to 8, they show us that his action is on behalf of his people. You see, God acts on behalf of his people to judge their enemies and restore their place. And if he did it for Israel, how much more so in the New Testament and in the New Testament people, the, the bride of Christ, the church. The same judgment that's promised here is promised to also vindicate, also promised to, to free his church. Now, God promises judgment for the enemies of his people. And at the same time, promises to restore his people. And that's the two-sided edge of God's sword of judgment. On one side, it's punishment, and on the other side, it's victory for his people. He promises to restore his people. He promises to restore the remnant and the remainder of his nation. And what that says is that God in his judgment is able to still save at the same time those who are his, those who are righteous. You see, maybe not all of Israel was righteous and those who were righteous, those who still followed God, God counted them as a remnant, as a remainder. The people will be destroyed from the land. The land will be desolate. But on the other hand, his people will be returned and restored to the land by the direct action of God. It won't happen by accident. God promises it and God acts to, to enact it. Judah's future occupancy is guaranteed through the faithfulness of God's word and the faithfulness of God's promise and the faithfulness of God's love for his people. And my brother and sister in Christ here this morning, I want you to hear the same for you. God's word is faithful God's promises are true. 
and God's faithful love continues for you who are in Christ Jesus. So God acts on behalf of his people, but God also acts in judgment in response to pride. Verse 10 says explicitly, this is what they get for their pride because they've taunted and acted arrogantly against the people of the Lord of armies. The Lord will be terrifying to them when he starves all the gods of the earth. Then all the distant coasts and islands of the nations will bow in worship to him, each in its own place. You Cushites will also be slain by my sword. He will also stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolate ruin, dry as the desert. Herds will lie down in the middle of it. Every kind of wild animal, both eagles and owls and herons, will roost in the capitals of its pillars. Their calls will sound from the window, but devastation will be on the threshold. He will expose the cedar work. This is the jubilant city that lives in security, that says to herself, I exist, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a place for wild animals to lie down. Everyone who passes her by scoffs, and shakes his fist. You see, God declares that he's taking action. And the reason he's taking action is because of the pride of the nations, the pride of the people. God's not acting arbitrarily. He's not just bringing down judgment just because judgment is so much fun. He's acting on behalf of his people to set them free, but also in response to the pride of the nations and the pride of the people. See, God hates pride. Because pride rises up, causes a person to act not only contrary to God, but despite God, and even without considering God at all. This is why they taunt God's people, knowing that God has set apart a people for himself and knowing that God acts on their behalf. The people in their pride says, who cares whose people they are? I'll treat them however I want. They ignore the true and the living God because their pride has lifted them up. And so God in his judgment of pride, he promises to starve all the gods of the earth, little g, because it's our pride that causes us to turn from God and seeing him as the true and living God and turning and putting our trust and thinking everything else works for us. The, the gods of money, the gods of our job, the gods of our reputation, this and that. In the same way that he rose up to show Egypt's gods worthless, he says, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to show them worthless and powerless in an effort for the nations to bow in worship of him. He says they'll be terrified through this display of power because they'll realize that they themselves are powerless despite all their pride. You see, pride is the root sin that removes one's worship of God to put it on themselves. I am the master of my own destiny. I can do this. I don't need I in God's list of nations, he continues on. He includes now the Cushites. Um, in case you're wondering where the Cushites fit into the world map, you can find the uh, nation of Ethiopia. That is the Cushites. And they will be slain by God's own sword. God's own hand will stretch out against the north. He will destroy Assyria. He will destroy Nineveh. They're going to be a desolate ruin. Why? Because he doesn't like the Ninevites and he doesn't like the uh, Assyrians? No, because they act in pride. God is acting and wielding his own sword. He's attacking pride. God hates pride. Verse 15 shows why. Because pride says one is secure. Pride says I exist and there is no one else. Pride raises up and declares it has no need of God. In fact, pride causes us to raise up and say that I am like God or I am God. You see the phrase in verse 15, 15 that says, I exist, is also translated, I am. That's the phrase that God uses for himself when he, when he introduces himself to, to Moses in Exodus. Why does God call himself, I am? Because God has no need. 
because God is everything that he needs. God is everything that's needed. These nations, these people, they, they, they have the audacious attitude, the audacious pride to, to claim this for themselves, to say, I have no need of God. I am, I exist. I don't need to consider anything else. I am the master of my own destiny. The prideful reject God. In Psalm chapter 2, it says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of all of us. You see, it's pride that says that God just wants to chain us down. It's pride that says that God is just restraining us because pride doesn't trust God. It rejects God. C.S. Lewis described pride as the sin of all sins. He says, pride is the essential vice. The utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that, they're mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. And pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. What we need to hear is the warning. God takes pride seriously. And so should we. And a fitting end that God gives to the prideful is that they should become the scorn of people. He says, I, I, I will take care of them. I will destroy them. I'll bring them down so that when one sees them, they will scoff at them. And they'll shake their fist at them in complete disgust. So they think that they're mighty, but people are going to scoff at them. They're going to they're have disdain for them. So God acts. But as Zephaniah is speaking this, I picture the nation of Judah going, yeah, go get them, those Gentiles. And that's why he then turns, God is going to judge all nations and now judgment comes to Jerusalem, it's included again. Because the Jews always had this tendency that when God started pronouncing judgment against others, they go, yeah, judgment's for them. We're, we're, we're fine. But that's not true. Jerusalem's included again because God wants them to understand they are a sinning people. You ask anybody, do you think you're good? They'll be like, well, I'm better than... You ask the Jews, are you a good people? Well, we're not like other nations. Never once does somebody say, well, in comparison to God, why? Because we all fall short of the glory of God. Zephaniah chapter three, verse one, it says, woe to that city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. She's not obeyed. She's not accepted discipline. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to God. The princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves of the night, which leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to instruction. You see, Zephaniah, having described God's willingness and even God's promise to act in regards to his people and in regard to the pride of nations, Zephaniah is again directed to come to Jerusalem. And it's akin to now the warning message is flashing. Perhaps as the warning is greater and greater and the danger is nearer and nearer, maybe it's not only flashing, but now there's sirens going off. Like God is like, listen up, guys. You need to understand this. And so De Zephaniah is directed by the message of God to emphasize Judah to see her own wickedness and her own guilt in order that she might seek repentance from the Lord and desire to be part of that remnant. God talks about how he's going to restore the remnant and hopefully the sinning people of Judah would say, I want to be that remnant. Lord, what, I need to be that remnant. What do I need to do? Jerusalem is a sinning people and they're described by the Lord. He describes them. He says they're rebellious. He says they're defiled. 
He says they're oppressive, not impressive. He said oppressive. And the root of Jerusalem's sinfulness is found in the phrase repeated four times. She has not. First off, he says, she has not obeyed. She's not obeyed. She has not obeyed the word of the Lord. She's not obeyed the voice of the Lord. God has called them from the beginning. He called out to them. The voice of the Lord came to them. God has from the beginning instructed them. God has sent prophets to them to declare his message to them, and they reject the message. They reject the voice of the Lord. She's not obeyed. She's not listened. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel the prophet says, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. So in all this superficial dedication to the Lord, they come and they bring all their gifts, they bring all their best, they bring all their presence to the Lord, and the whole time they're separate from him because they don't obey him. And what God is saying is obedience is better than sacrifice. Why? Because the sacrifice that God wants is the sacrifice of a heart devoted to him. When your heart's devoted to the Lord, all that other worship, all that other sacrifice naturally follows. But if you have all that other stuff without the heart, there's nothing. It goes on to say, she's not accepted discipline. She's not accepted discipline because she's not obeyed the word of God. And so it moves on. She's not received the correction from the Lord. Discipline has come to her. He sent the prophets. They come bringing the message. He sent the famines to them. He sent the plagues to them. He sent them the trouble and the desolations, but they didn't receive it. When God judges a nation, he sends things to them. And sometimes that nation needs to understand that's the Lord warning them to turn back to him. And, but sometimes nations, they don't receive it as discipline from the Lord. What they say is, we're going through a bad time right now. Rough times are ahead. They might say something like, we're in an economic downturn. We're just going through some terrible circumstances right now. We just need to wait. We're, we're on the downswing. And, and don't worry, the upswing's coming with, without any change from the nation. No. He, Judah did not receive the discipline of the Lord as correction. Job 5.17 says, See how happy is the person whom the Lord corrects. So do not reject the discipline of the Almighty. A lot of times... When God comes to us with discipline, we tend to, to be like, no, 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 that's not, I, I, I didn't do that. I don't deserve discipline or correction. We think that God is just waiting for us to mess up, but God is desiring to correct us, and it's good for us. We should be happy at the correction. Therefore, we must not reject the discipline of the Almighty. Proverbs 3.11 says, do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son. Do not loathe his discipline, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as the father disciplines the son in whom he delights. You see, when God disciplines us, that's proof that he loves us. For those of us who have kids and those of us who were kids, yet yeah, all of us, we were disciplined out of love. The parent that hates their child does not discipline their child because they don't care what direction their child is going in. God, if he didn't love us, he would see us walking towards destruction. And he would say, good, I don't care. But God sees us headed for destruction and he's screaming at us. He's yelling at us. He's putting things in our path. He's making our life completely uncomfortable to get us to turn and to change our ways because he loves us. But then it goes on, it says, she has not trusted in the Lord. Do you see the one who rejects the discipline of God is because they reject that God is trustworthy. God has not given a single reason that he can't be trusted in all the history of the nation of Israel. Time after time after time, God has proven himself trustworthy. God has proven himself to be faithful. God has proven himself to be righteous. But when one rejects 
trusting the Lord, the only thing they're left with is they trust in themselves. They trust in their own understanding. But Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and rely not on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him and he will make your path straight. You want to know how to make your path straight? How do I get on the straight and narrow? Well, you got to turn over all your ways to the Lord. You have to turn over your job. You have to turn over your finances. You have to turn over your family. You have to turn over your personal life. You have to turn over your emotions. You have to turn over your thoughts. You have to turn over your entertainment in all your ways of being. Know him and he will make your path straight. Then finally, he says, she has not drawn near to her God. The worst offense God saves for last because God is a relational God. He's always desired relationship with his creation, especially with the people that he created in his own image. But they reject and they go their own way apart from him because they reject his word, they reject his correction, and they don't trust him. And through all those things, now she's drawn away from the Lord. And we need to understand that pattern. The one who does not obey God's word the one who does not accept God's discipline, and the one who does not trust God will also not draw near to God. They can't. You can't draw near to God if you won't hear his word. You can't draw near to God if you won't hear his discipline. You can't draw near to God if you don't trust God. And the one who remains far from God instead remains close to sin and sinfulness. It's impossible to remain sinful and and walking in sin the closer you are to a holy God. And here's what we need to remember. Each and every one of us is as close to God as we desire to be. The promise in the epistle of James is draw near to him and he will draw near to you. He desires to be near to you. He's not going to force it though. And God all through his word has promised that the one who seeks me with all his heart will find me. You see, God desires to be known. He's given us his word that reveals him to us. He doesn't play this giant uh, cosmic game of hide and seek with his people. He desires to be known. He desires to be found. We just have to desire to find him. And then he describes the nation of of Judah. He says, they're corrupt from the leadership down. Their princes are nothing more than roaring lions. The one who who, who are supposed to be judging for them in in all the cases that matter, they're nothing more than wolves in the night, devouring everything, leaving nothing for the morning. Her prophets, those who are to speak the word of the God, they're reckless, they're treacherous. It's a treacherous thing when someone speaks a word of the Lord for profit, for their own benefit, to be liked. It says, her priests profane the sanctuary and they do violence to the instruction because they don't even follow the command of the Lord, yet they're going to lead others to follow the command of the Lord. Instead of being holy, the city's filthy, polluted with shameful sin. And God has spoken to his people but they've refused his correction. Their guilt is increased by God's faithfulness. In verse five, it says, the righteous Lord is in her. He does no wrong. He applies his justice morning by morning. He does not fail at dawn. Yet the one who does no wrong, the the one who does wrong knows no shame. He says, I've cut off nations. Their corner towers are destroyed. I've laid waste to their streets with no one to pass through. Their cities lie devastated without a person, without an inhabitant. He says, I I said, you will certainly fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling place would not be cut off based on all that I had allocated to her. However, they became more corrupt in all their actions. Zephaniah declares to them 
the most damning truth for their sin. God remained faithful. Even when they were faithless, God remained faithful. When they turned from God, when they turned to their own way, when they did things that they wanted to, when they rebelled against God, God remained faithful to them. God remained faithful and true to his word. God remained faithful and true to his promises. God had never failed them. When he led them out of Egypt and they first rebelled at the bottom of Mount Sinai, God continued with them. When they rebelled and he brought them to the promised land and they refused to go in and they refused to trust God, God was still faithful to them. He may have punished them by making them wander 40 years in the desert, but that was a discipline. That wasn't a uh, turning away from them. And in that 40 years, did you know that they wandered 40 years? Their shoes never wore out. Their clothes never wore out. They never went a day without the Lord providing food for them because the Lord is faithful. He judged other nations before them, utterly destroyed them. He did it as a warning and a message to them. And, and God did all these things. He worked all these miracles in front of this nation that was set apart to be holy and unto him. And he did it so that they would receive the correction. But they did not receive it. His desire was that he would restore the fear of the Lord because it's in the fear of the Lord that there is wisdom, understanding, and instruction. But they wouldn't receive it. He said that if they would receive the correction, her dwelling place, which I promised, would not be cut off. How did Judah, how did Jerusalem respond to the faithfulness of God? They became more corrupt in all their ways. In Leviticus 26, verse 23, it says, If in spite of these things you do not accept my discipline, but act with hostility towards me, then I will act with hostility towards you. I will also strike you seven times for your sin. Now that's not talking that he's going to only afflict them seven times and then after that God can't do anything else. The number seven always has a, a deeper meaning and that means I will afflict you, I will strike you perfectly. I will strike you with a completion on it. The promise of God when he made the covenant with them, he says, I will bring you into a land and you will dwell in cities which you did not build. He says, I will bring you into a land where you will harvest fruits that you did not plant, that you did not work for. He says, if you keep my statutes, if you keep my laws, if you keep my commands, if you continue to do all the things that I'm going to teach you, I will keep you in that land. He says, but if you don't, I will remove you from the land. And God didn't wait for their first mistake and go, that's it, you're out. God is a patient God. Even when God was speaking to Abraham. He said, your people will go into Egypt and I will keep them there for they will not enter in the promised land for 400 more years after that. He said, because the wickedness of the people of that land has not reached the fullness. Why? Because God was giving them time and opportunity to either repent or to store up their wrath for themselves. So when Israel was led out of Egypt and brought into the land of Canaan, it was to remove the Canaanites because the wrath of God had been filled against them. God was long-suffering with the nation of Israel for hundreds of years before he put them into exile. Even in this pronounced judgment, God remains faithful. God remains true to his word and true to his promises towards Judah. But Judah responds by being eager to continue in their own corrupt ways. God brought justice to the nations around Judah. And instead of hearing the warning, instead of learning, they dedicated themselves to ungodliness all the more. They doubled down. He said he would judge and he would show that he would judge and he, and he brought judgment. And they said, you know what? In spite of all that judgment, we're going to sin harder. And before we get too comfortable, may we remember the culture of our day. Our most damning aspect of our culture is that people celebrate and flaunt their sin. As God tries to correct it, as God has promised judgment, as God has promised what would happen to those who act in such ways, 
the culture of our time is flaunting and celebrating our sin. Sin has always been since the garden. But our culture is now taking pride in their sin and following in those footsteps, becoming more corrupt in all their actions. And so when God pronounces judgment, judgment is universal. Judgment is universal. Look at verse 8. God says, therefore, wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration. Until the day I rise up for plunder, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms in order to pour out my indignation on them. All my burning anger for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. That word, therefore, if you've been under any expository preaching for any length of time, you know that when you see the word therefore, you have to go back to the preceding passages and the preceding context to see what it's there for. He says, therefore, wait for me. He's saying, wait for me because the nation, instead of heeding the warning, chose to become more corrupt. The Lord says, wait for me until the day I rise up. He promised judgment and there's a set time for that judgment until the day I rise up. God already has a day set aside. There's a time where I will come for plunder. There's a time where I will come to conquer, to take from the wicked and the corrupt. God has decided not only how it will happen, but God has made a decision on when it will happen. You see, God said, I've made the decision. I will assemble all the kingdoms together. He says, instead of fighting against these kingdoms that rise up against me all at once, God says, you know what? I'm going to give them enough time that they're going to assemble together in all their unrighteousness, and they're going to stand up together against me in rebellion to me. And so he's going to have them gather all together in their rebellion, in their wickedness, at an appointed time. Now, the immediate application, of course, is for the Babylonian captivity. But this points forward to a time that's coming, and it's the time that marks the end of the tribulation period. This is the gathering together, and it's known as the Battle of Armageddon. It is at this time the fullness of the Lord's wrath will be poured out along with the fire of his jealous anger against all who stand opposed to him. And Hebrews 10.31 says that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, it's promised in another minor prophet, which we'll be looking at soon, the prophet Zechariah in 14.2 says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle. The city will be captured, the houses looted, the women raped, half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be removed from the city. He's talking about two different times. He's talking about they'll go into exile, but then it's also talking about a time where the people will not be pushed out. <clears throat> Revelation 16.14 says there are demonic spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the God, the Almighty. Revelation 16, 16 tells us where. It says they assembled the kings at the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Valley of Megiddo, also known as the Valley of Jezreel. If you ever go there and you ever see it, you get to look out on this vast land that's open. It's, it's this valley. It's completely open. And it's the east and the west meet there. The north and the south meet there. It's just this, this place that's wide and open. And it's, you know, I guess it's large enough for the entire kingdoms of the world to be assembled together against God. But what happens is what, what God has pronounced is that they're going to assemble together in their final act of rebellion against him. And Christ is going to show up to set up his millennial kingdom. And this battle is not even a battle. Christ will speak his words and it's the word of God which causes them to fall slain. We're about to see in the third and final section of Zephaniah's book, the deliverance of the Lord for the nation of Israel. A section I personally love because in it we see the light break forth because of the sunrise. And we watch for it. There's four, four ways that it talks about it throughout the rest of that chapter three. You have the regathering of Israel. You'll see the repenting of Israel, the rejoicing of Israel, and the redeemer of Israel. And God's promise in the day of the Lord is that he will pour out his wrath upon the gathered nations to deliver his people and establish his kingdom forever. 
Now, as we close, the challenge for us as believers is believing that God loves us. It's a struggle that we fight with every day when things come against us. We say, oh, this is happening because maybe God doesn't love me. Or now that I've done this, maybe God doesn't love me. As if God's love is conditional. So we tell ourselves that we need to be awesome. We tell ourselves that we need to be perfect. And that we need to keep being perfect because everything that's going right in our life is all because we're being perfect. And if we stop being perfect, things will fall apart. If you believe that you have an almighty God, why will you not feel secure to trust him and his faithfulness? You see, this passage today tells us that God is mindful of his people. God remembers his people even when they're in exile. He promises hope and he promises to restore their fortunes. Now, what does it mean that he's going to restore their fortunes? Well, first and foremost, let's just say it goes beyond material and political possession. When he says, I will restore my people, he's, he's not just talking he's going to give them back their nation. He's not just talking that he's going to restore what was taken from them, that they will no longer be homeless and things like that. But he's talking about spiritual wholeness. He will restore them. I was having a conversation and, and it, if you think about broken glass, to restore broken glass, it's not enough to just take the one whole piece and say, okay, there's, there it is, it's restored. And there's still jagged edges and broken pieces. When God restores, he puts it back the shape that it was with no jagged edges because he's bringing wholeness. He's going to wash away the sin the guilt. The apostles asked the same thing of the risen Christ in Acts chapter one. They, they said, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Because remember at that time, they didn't own, it wasn't their nation. They weren't in control. And God's, Jesus's reply was, God knows what he's doing and he's going to do it in his time. There's a time set aside. But here's what I want us to see. Here's what I believe God wants us to see. The prophecies about the destruction of all these nations have come true. It's reasonable and it's expected that we would believe that Zephaniah's other prophecies, all of God's other prophecies, all of God's word will be fulfilled and can be trusted. You see, when the day of the Lord has run its course, though it comes against all these nations, when it has run its course, Israel will be delivered as is promised. They will be restored and God will establish his kingdom on earth through the reign of Jesus, their Messiah. God's judgment comes against all nations. It comes against even his own nation in, in a sense of discipline because they're called specifically to be separate from the surrounding nations. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world. We should not be conformed to this world. We shouldn't want to be like this world. We shouldn't want to think like this world. We shouldn't want to look like this world or act like this world. But also know that God's promises still stand. God made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis. He says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And all throughout time, God continues to keep a remnant and a remainder of Israel and God continues to show blessing to those who bless his people and God continues to show contempt to those who show contempt to his people. God's word remains true. God's word will be fulfilled at the appointed time. And we as God's people need to understand this and know this so that we can claim and we can hold on to God's promises knowing that our God is faithful. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you and if I go, I'm coming back for you. 
so that I can receive you and you can come with me and that where I am, you will be also. That's his promise for us. Christ is coming back for us. The promise is that God knows how to keep the righteous separate from the unrighteous in judgment. And so Christ is going to come and separate us before that judgment happens. It's been promised. Our God is true. We can trust him. We have to obey God's word. We have to receive his discipline. We have to trust the Lord. And in doing all those things, we continue to draw near to the Lord. But without doing those things, we can't draw near to him. God has also made another promise, one that we hold on to. He said, I promise to forgive the sins of those who receive my son as the substitute of the sacrifice for their sins. Christ came to live a perfect and holy life. He didn't come to live perfect and holy to say, see, that's how it should be done. He came to live a perfect and holy life so that he could offer his life as the perfect sacrifice and he could exchange that perfect life for another. Jesus came as God's son to be eternal and divine that his life would be exchanged for one another, but his life would retain the value of infinite lives that all who would call upon him and ask for forgiveness for their sins would be forgiven and promised eternal life through him. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. Those who believe in me and my name shall be saved. They will have life. He who does not have the son does not have life. It is only through Christ that you escape that judgment that's coming. And we need to hear the warning of God. It is coming. And so if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, the promise in God's word that he holds true, that he holds faithful, is that all who come to Christ will by no means be cast away. All who call upon the name of Christ shall be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your prophets who spoke your word, Father God. We thank you that you are faithful to your word, that you did not speak any words carelessly, aimlessly, or capriciously, Father. But Lord, that you spoke perfectly, faithfully, always accomplishing your word, always fulfilling your word, Father God, so that we can trust your word. Lord, help us to hold on to and to trust. Trust in you, Father God. That we wouldn't need to trust in ourselves, but that we would say, I trust in the one who says, I am. You have need of nothing because you can provide everything, so we need you, Father. Father, we thank you that you do warn us so that we may flee the wrath to come through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray and we thank you and we honor and glorify you. Amen.